want to invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 19, and we'll finish the book. Greg Easterbrook writes this in his book, The Progress Paradox. He says, most Americans enjoy a higher standard of living than 99.4% of all of the 80 billion humans ever born. That's pretty amazing. 99.4%. Um, and yet, he writes, we are not content. We as Americans aren't content. You know, our, our whole system, our whole economy, and I want our, our economy to prosper. I do. But our whole economy is built on greed, wanting more and more of the stuff that we have already. He writes, um, Easterbrook writes, our lives are characterized by too much of a good thing. We have an excess at every turn. William Falk, magazine editor of The Week, writes, we are surrounded by so much food that obesity has become a national crisis. We're tempted so much by so much entertainment and information and stuff to buy that we sleep three hours less than our grandparents. According to the World Wealth Calculator, if your household income is 33500 or above, you are in the top 5% of uh, wage earners in the world. And the question is, are we content? Are we satisfied with what we have? Do we have enough? And even to make it a little more personal, do you have enough? Are you content? Today we come to the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Uh, we've, we've called this series, Rise Above Your Circumstances, because the Apostle Paul had this way of going through difficulty and facing really hard stuff, and yet it didn't drag him under. He was able to rise above his circumstances. And today we have two very important principles uh, in this passage, and I'm just going to start by reading the passage for us. We're going to be looking at uh, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19, and here's what the Apostle Paul writes. He said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at, the la at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, or for, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. 
For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I've received full payment and have more than enough. I'm amply su supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The very first principle in this section we see in verses 10 through 13, and it's learn to be content. Learn to be content. The first we see the situation in verse 10. We're going to do a little review here. And verse 10, uh, the apostle writes, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And that's been a really common theme in the book of Philippians. The apostle Paul finds his joy in Christ, in his relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I rejoice greatly, emphasize greatly in the Lord, that at last you renewed your concern for me. And he's, and he's referring back to something that's already happened. Indeed, you were concerned, but that you had no opportunity to show it. So what's he talking about? So I want us to remember that the Apostle Paul, where is he? He's in a prison, or he's held a prisoner in Rome, and we leave him there in Acts 28. It's not actually in a, in a dungeon. He's probably in private quarters, but he's chained to a Roman soldier, and we know that that lasted at least two years, and we assume that he was released afterwards, but he didn't know at this point whether he would live or die. Paul had started this church in the city of Philippi, and it's over 800 miles away, and that's almost like the way the crow flies, and nobody traveled like that in the first century. And he had to travel a lot of that by ship, and it wasn't uh, as the crow flies. While Paul was in prison, while, while Paul was a prisoner, while he was in Rome, the Philippian church had sent a significant financial gift to support his ministry, and they gave it to a messenger, Epaphroditus, and we met him back in chapter 2, verse 25. And Paul's letter then is kind of a thank you note with uh, some important instruction uh, about how to live as a Christ follower. In verse 10, Paul remarks that their gift caused him to greatly rejoice in the Lord because that's where he finds his joy. And he considers the events of life and he puts them into the context of what is God is doing. So he's a prisoner and he's not thinking about what he doesn't have. He's thinking about what God is doing. He sees this big picture. He knows that God works all things together for good for those who love him. And that's what he sees. He sees the good that's come out of this, and he sees the good that the Philippians have done. And he just rejoices because the Philippians have sent him a financial gift. Now comes the secret in verses 11 and 12. And the secret is revealed. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. For I've learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Now, he doesn't rejoice because he got this gift. Oh, now my needs are met. Now I'm happy. 
he shares this uh, monumental truth that he has learned and his experience firsthand. He has learned to be content. He's learned to be satisfied with how God is working in his life. He's learned to be satisfied with what God has provided. And it is enough. And he's learned to be content. Um, in verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. So he, he, he considers his life and he thinks about the good times and the hard times. He, he has experienced poverty. He's experienced homelessness. He has experienced the good life with plenty. And he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, this is something that the Apostle Paul has learned over time. You know, it wasn't one of those magical things that happened that is a conversion so that now he's always content. This is something he experienced, is something that day by day as he walked with Christ and as he learned to trust Christ to enable him to serve and to trust Christ for the needs of his team and ministry, just like missionaries today. And um, he had learned to be content. Um, learning to be content is something that we can learn. Um, Paul is modeling for us a very important spiritual truth. And I would guess that as, uh, if we wanted to interview everybody in the room, we would find various levels of where you are in contentment. And it may be that there have been times in your life where you were more content than you are right now. But this is something very important for a Christ follower because it really affects every area of your life. I mean, how can you have the peace with God if you can't be content? How can you have the mind of Christ if you aren't content? It's really an important concept. Um, and the question for us is, is that something we have learned? Have we learned the secret of being content? Of saying, God, what you've given me is enough. I'm thankful. I'm grateful. I can give you praise for what you have done in my life. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, uh, the apostle Paul writes to Timothy, a young pastor, and he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godly life, important. Growing spiritually, maturing, following Christ. But it, there needs to be contentment in there, too. It's very important that I'm okay with God. I'm, I, I, God has provided for me and it fills me. It is enough. He says, for we, are, we, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. That's true. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. W will you? Will I be content with just food and clothing? Will I be content with 
what I need, not what I want. One writer says, whatever we have, we have because God in his grace and generosity has given it to us. When we realize this, there comes into our lives a joyful gratitude for what we do have. And we are freed from resentment and anxiety over what we don't have. Whatever we have, we have because God has provided. I don't know why I was born in the United States of America. I don't know why I have all that I have. I don't deserve it. God has been very generous with me. And the question is, is am I thankful about it? Do I have gratitude for what God is doing? Because it affects on my view of the things that I don't have. Another writer says this, he says, the person with a, with a discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much and everything God does for him is too little. Is God doing enough for you? Are you, are you okay with how God has provided for you? Would you say you're content or discontent? How can you have a contented heart? Well, we see this in verse 13. The source of contentment, verse 13, I can do all this, I can do all these things, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And the way I memorize is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things. I can do all things that God wants me to do through Christ who strengthens me. And the big question here, this, this word contentment in the first century, it, it was used by Greek Stoic philosophers, and it meant self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency was something that um, the Greek philosophers were really proud of. I'm a self-made man. I do all this. I don't need other people. Uh, I, I can get along. If I don't have food, I'm, I'm tough. I can get along without it. I can wait. I, I'm self-sufficient. That was a very prideful thing. And when Paul uses this word, he says, my contentment, it's found in Christ. I am not self-sufficient. He says, I am Christ-sufficient. And, you know, this is a kind of a confusing message. We live in the United States of America, one nation, indivisible, under God, right? And yet we, we have this economy that's propelled by more and more and more, and you're out of style, and your technology is out of date, and your car's last year's model, or 10 years ago model, and... You probably need to upgrade. And we, we live in this country, and we are a country of people who pick themselves up by the bootstraps. And we, we said we were one nation under God, but yet we don't operate that way because we, we show how much we can produce and how we do it, and we just do it by hard work. And we think about God on Sundays, but the rest of the time we're just so busy producing and achieving 
and accomplishing and earning. But that's how we live here in America. We're just normal that way. But that's not exactly what, what Paul is talking about here. We, as a Christ follower, I have strength and energy because of God has enabled me. And I have resources because God has given them to me and he can take them away. And my health can disappear and all kinds of things can happen that are out of my control. It is Christ who gives us our sufficiency. Jesus taught something like this in John 15, 5. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches if you remain in me. And I in you, you will bear much fruit. You'll be productive. You'll be successful in following me. You'll share the good news. You'll do the things that bring glory to Christ. And he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's kind of what Paul was saying. I can do all things through Christ, but apart from him, I can do nothing that's going to be eternally valuable or nothing that honors God. The question really is, is what's really going to be important to us? What do we want to accomplish with our, with our lives? The Apostle Paul has learned this secret, that bearing fruit for Christ is greatly rewarding. It's fulfilling. In John 10.10, 10, uh, Jesus had another passage. It's kind of interesting. Uh, most of you will know it. Jesus told his disciples, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. A disciple with a life that's filled to the full. Uh, sometimes it's called the abundant life. Was he talking about prosperity financially? Well, it may include that, but that's not what it's all about. It's about being satisfied. It's about being in the place of contentment because of what Christ has done. And thriving as a person, thriving spiritually as a Christ follower... And this is what the Apostle Paul had experienced. He had experienced this full life, life to its full, and he was deeply satisfied because of Christ. The second principle is in verses 14 through 19. Learn to be generous. Learn to be generous. The situation we see in verses 14 through 16, now he's going to go back and reflect, he says, yet it was good of you to share my troubles. Um, he goes back to the gift given to him by the Philippian believers. And it, that was good. The, he, the, the financial support was great. He appreciated it. Verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, in Acts chapter 16, when the Apostle Paul was there with Timothy and planted that church, and after he planted the church, he set out, he says, when I set out from Macedonia, that's the province where Philippi is, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. And he is praising them for their kindness and their generosity because they have had a partnership in the gospel through their financial giving. Then he says in verse 16, for even when I was in Thessalonica, 
you know, the Thessalonians, First and Second Thessalonians, another city, he said, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He said, you sent me missionary support more than one time. And he is so grateful for these people, the Philippian church. And now comes the challenge in verses 17 and 18. He says in verse 17, not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. And what Paul is referring to here is that, you know, one day, and this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, one day every one of us will appear before Christ, will, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will give an account of our lives. And one of the things that's true about this, we're going to give an account for, oh, by the way, what did you do with the money I gave you? How did you manage? Were you a good steward with what I gave you? And, you know, we we all will give an account. And, And Paul is acknowledging here that as the Philippians had given financial gifts uh, to to support God's work, God was taking note and there would be a notice, a credit in their account in heaven as if it was a financial transaction. He says in verse 18, I've received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. I'm filled. Not that I have received, now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So he's going back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 25. Epaphroditus brought the gift, and Paul is saying, I'm, I'm filled. And then, then he describes the gift that was given. He describes it in this way. He said, they are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. It's a picture of worship. Their giving was an act of worship, and it was well-pleasing to God. And uh, what Paul is doing here, he's going back to the Old Testament, a, a, a picture of a fragrant offering, which would have been something like um, someone bringing grain to the temple and mixing it with oil or wine or something else. And the idea was it was offered at the altar as a burnt offering, and then that smoke arose to heaven, and uh, it, it was a picture of a, a demonstration of an obedient life, a life that was pleasing to God. And that's what Paul is saying about their giving. It's pleasing, it's well-pleasing to God. It's like a fragrant aroma. And when you are generous, it is well-pleasing to God. In uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 7, the Apostle Paul writes, and, and he, so he's talking to the Corinthians now, he says, but since you excel in everything, in faith and speech and, and in knowledge, to in complete earnestness and in the love we have kindled in you. I don't know if that was all true in that they sure thought they were a cut above everybody else. But he's saying, since you're already good in all these things and and I probably can't help you in all these things, but see that you excel in this grace of giving. 
And what he encourages them is to excel. And maybe they're giving. And this is a great challenge to us, to be like the Philippian church, to excel in the grace of giving. Now, I confess, and I'm, I'm really grateful, I think I've seen this at the bridge and Grow Forward, I think, has been a great example for us and a great encouragement to us. And I think a lot of you really took some of the principles in Scripture and made some steps. And some of you had been putting these into practice for a long time. And some of you, these were kind of new, and, and you stretched yourself, and you, and you gave. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we are in such a good place with our Grow Forward campaign is because... You have excelled in your giving. And I just want to say, you know, there's no place for us to just stop and say, well, I did that, I'm done now. It's something that we can continue to challenge ourselves with. How can I excel in this grace of giving? It's a grace because God is the one who gives to me. He's the one who supplies. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 6, the apostle uh, Paul writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. This using an agricultural metaphor like a farmer who is planting. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Um, he's saying sowing seeds in a crop is just like giving money to God. There's a, there's a parallel here. And he says, if we give sparingly, expect God to give sparingly. And then he says, if we give generously, we can expect God to be generous with us. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily he's going to increase our finances. He might, because one of the principles seems to be there are times, and with some people, God does bless financially so that they are able to give more. And, of course, you have to be able to be content if you're, if you're going to do that. Um, verse 7, he says, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for, for God loves a cheerful giver. God does not set a hard and fast rule about how much you should give. Now, I know some of you are committed to tithing, 10% of your income. I'd say, that's really a good thing. I don't find a hard and fast rule that that's what God expects in the New Testament. I would argue that giving the New Testament, maybe since it's by grace, it's not by law, that grace giving is more than a tenth, because tenth was law. And we didn't have grace back then. Now we have grace. But the important thing here is nobody else decides but you. You decide. You reflect. How much can you trust God with? With his money. How much of his money can you trust him with? Uh, but you get to decide. And here's the thing. God loves a cheerful giver. What an amazing thing. He wants your heart. And he may be waiting for you to become a cheerful giver. Because maybe you don't give cheerfully. 
maybe you don't give it all, but maybe you're kind of begrudging about it. He wants you to be able to do this because you want to. Because of your love for him, you just want to. And, and again, there's not a rule about how much that is. That's between you and God. And God loves a cheerful giver. It brings him joy. He is well pleased. Uh, it's like a fragrant aroma that Paul describes to the Philippians. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, Paul instructs again Timothy, uh, the young pastor, and he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but put their hope in God. Command those who are rich in this present world. I think I would argue that we are rich in this present world. All of our problems are first world problems, not third world problems. And our problems are real. I'm not. But we are the rich. And the danger for us is to be arrogant. The danger for us is to think that we are more important because of look at what we have accomplished. That we are more important than people, than people who have less. That somehow God favors us more than he does in some people in third world countries. It's not true. The danger for us is to be arrogant and to think that we somehow have more value or are more important than other people. There's a danger for us to put our hope in wealth as if that is what will bring us contentment, as if that is what is going to make us sufficient, as if that is what is going to uh, solve our problems. And I can do all things through Christ. Christ can supply what I need if it's finances, whatever it is. But if I think my wealth is going to do it, I'm missing an absolutely crucial concept. We must not put our hope in a nice home or a better car or more man toys. We must put our hope, we must not put our hope in our physical uh, appearance that if we invest in personal beauty, that's going to make us happy. We must put our hope in God. for Now, I don't care if you take care of, you're concerned about looking your best and that you want to have a nice home. That's okay. But our hope needs to be in God. And where I can learn to be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Um, so how do we show our hope in God? Look at verse 18. Paul says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is how we can put our hope in God, by doing good, by living out what we believe in following Christ, by being rich in good deeds, and the idea is to just keep adding to them like you do your savings account or your checking account. Just keep adding to your good deeds. 
and to be generous with what you have and to be willing to share with what you have, to share with God's church, to share with God's people in need, to share with the poor and the under-resourced people. And then there's a promise in verse 19. He has a promise for those who are generous. And by the way, this is what all this context is about in verse 19. Those who are generous. Verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. God will meet all your needs according to all the riches available to Christ that he has at his disposal. And he can provide for your deepest needs to fill them up so that you will be satisfied and that you will be full. It may include money and it may not. Because maybe you need money and maybe you don't. You may want certain things, but Christ will meet all your needs according to his riches. Jesus uh, put it this way. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All these things that you need, all these things that are really important may not necessarily be all that you want, but all that you need. And I just want to remind us that the source, verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This is how we do it. This is the kind of person that God wants us to be. I can be all things through Christ. All things that he wants me to be, all things that he wants me to do through him with his strength. Not my strength, because I will fail. I can rely on Christ to be generous because I can be stingy when I just leave him out. I can rely on Christ and learn contentment. I can rely on Christ and have the same attitude, the mind of Christ. I can rely on Christ and work out my salvation with fear and trembling, and I can shine like a light in a dark and perverse generation. I can rely on Christ and conduct my life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because when I don't rely on Christ, I get all over the board on how I live. Jesus is worthy of our full devotion. And today we're going to honor him as we, as we come to the end of uh, the book of Philippians. We're going to honor him through a time of communion. He died for us, and now we are to live for him. This includes remembering him through this time of communion. Um, the death of Christ, and I, you know, I, we say this over and over, the death of Christ is central to the gospel. It is central to the good news. There is no gospel, and there is no forgiveness apart from the death of Christ. There is no way of salvation apart from the death of Christ. And God wants this to be central in our message. 
It's central in the picture of baptism, isn't it? Death, burial, and resurrection to a new life. And it's central when we take the bread and we take the cup and we remember, remember him for who he is and for what he has done. The, the bread is a symbol that represents his body and the cup of juice is a symbol that represents his blood. And when we do this, it's kind of a reboot. It's kind of a, okay, let's refresh here. Let's, let's make sure that we're all starting on the same page. And if there is sin, we need to confess it because Paul says we need to examine ourselves before we, before we come to this time. Um, it's a chance to recenter and a chance to refocus. Now, what we're going to do is, um, and if you know this is your, your first time here today, what we're going to do is um, we have a station here and a station here. It's sealed communion, and so there's a seal you pull off for the bread, and there's a second seal you pull off for the juice. What we're going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to take a time to examine ourselves. I'm going to thank God for the bread and the cup. And after I pray, I'm going to give you the opportunity just to come up you can form a couple of lines and come up and grab the sealed communion, walk back to your chair, and you can take it uh, whenever you want. So let me pray. God, I'm just so grateful uh, to be here with your people and to celebrate communion to remember your death, to remember your life, to remember your sacrifice, to remember the cost of our salvation. And right now we thank you for the bread that represents your body that was crucified. We thank you for the cup that represents the blood that you shed on the cross. And God, we just pause and we ask you to search our hearts, to know our hearts, to know our minds, Help us to be honest before you. Maybe this past year there were some things that we didn't represent you well to our community, whether it was the election cycle or the stress of COVID or just difficult circumstances. And we really didn't represent you well. Maybe it's our attitudes in our home, the words that have been spoken. Maybe it's the way we handle our thought life or our personal life. Just take time and ask God to show you, and when he does, just be honest with him privately and silently. Make your confession to him. God, we're so grateful that you've given us a promise that if we confess our sins... You are faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for all those who have made a confession. 
and been honest with you that you have forgiven and cleansed. We give you praise. Thank you for the death of Jesus. Thank you now for the bread and the cup. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.